Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and on today's show, we learn how a janitor in Rancho Cucamonga invented a spicy snack you can now find in every supermarket. What flavor is flaming hot? It is not a flavor. It transcends flavors. It transcends food. And we meet some Southern California artists challenging the image of the Valley Girl and the way it made them see themselves in the mirror. You know, not liking the size of my body or my face because I didn't fit into that stereotype of the Valley Girl. Plus, writer Lawrence Ferlinghetti celebrates his 100th birthday and reflects back on how his San Francisco bookstore tried to break poetry out of its stuffy academic cage. We were young and foolish. (laughs) I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. We're starting today's show with a snack craze that some kids just can't seem to get enough of. Flamin' Hot Cheetos. We headed over to McLean High School in Fresno to talk to some Cheeto-loving teenagers as they ripped open bags of the stuff and started crunching. I like the texture. Like I like the crunchiness. I can't really explain it, but it's just addicting in a way. For me, I'm like whitewashed Mexican, so they're kind of spicy for me. Like after school or when you're watching a movie or something? It's like good hot, like the hot that makes you want to keep eating it. But there's one bit of etiquette these students say is a must when it comes to sharing a bag of flaming Hot Cheetos. You don't lick your fingers. It's like against the rules. That, that's a no bueno. That, that's a no-go. You have to wait yeah, until the end of the it's bag. It's courtesy. And then like when you're done, then you lick your fingers. It's like the best part. <laughs> For our series Golden State Plate, KQED's Bianca Taylor started asking around to find out how the Hot Cheetos trend got started. Flaming Hot Cheetos in one way or another have always been part of my life. Gustavo Ariano is a features writer for the Los Angeles Times and author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. So before the invention of Flaming Hot Cheetos, what we Mexican kids would do would just get a bag of Cheetos and put a bunch of tapatio on it. So they're already flaming hot. Richard Montañez was one of those kids. He was born in Mexico, but grew up in Southern California, picking grapes on a migrant labor farm with his 10 siblings. He dropped out of school at a really young age and in 1976, without knowing how to read or write, got a job as a janitor at Frito-Lay in Rancho Cucamonga. 
He had been working there for nearly two decades, when one day, Richard was mopping floors, when he noticed something was wrong. Cheetos were getting pumped out without their signature neon orange flavoring on top. So he decided to take a few of these blank Cheetos home to experiment with some of his favorite spices, things he had grown up eating on the burritos his mom made him and on the elote he bought from street vendors. Here he is describing that day in a talk at UCLA. What if I put some chili on it? I made my own chili. See, it just wasn't my idea. I made my own chili. So there I was, I made it and I, oh, it tastes great. Took it to work. What do you think? What do you think? Everybody loved it. Frito-Lay had just launched a campaign to empower its workers, so Richard took those words to heart and called up the CEO of Frito-Lay. He told him he had an idea for how to break into the Latino market. Before they met, he read a library book on market strategy and bought a $2 tie. At that meeting, he sold the idea of Flamin' Hot Cheetos. Here's Gustavo Arellano again. Montaigne's genius was that he was bold enough to go up to his bosses and say, hey, look, this would be a really great idea. And the bosses were smart enough to uh, run with the idea. Decades later, his creation is one of Frito-Lay's top selling products. And Richard is an executive at PepsiCo. By the way, I reached out to Richard for this story, but he never got back to me. Either way, this is an insane rags to riches tale. But it's not where this story ends. These days, Flaming Hot Cheetos are completely ingrained in pop culture. From hip-hop shout-outs, this song is appropriately called Hot Cheetos and Takis. Hot Cheetos and Takis, Hot Cheetos and Takis, I can't get enough of these Hot Cheetos and Takis. To eBay. Well, this just goes to show people spend money on anything, or at least try to. A Cheeto shaped like the famous Gorilla Harambe, just sold on eBay for nearly $100,000. And Katy Perry's Halloween costume. The 30-year-old pop star went to Kate Hudson's Halloween party Thursday night dressed as a crunchy, flaming hot Cheeto. It hasn't all been good publicity, though. In 2012, schools in Pasadena banned flaming hot Cheetos from their campuses, citing nutritional concerns. But that hasn't stopped chefs from creating dishes inspired by the red-hot snack, like steaks and burritos, sushi, and even pizza. So how long were you eating hot Cheetos before you came up with this idea? Long time. Yeah, I used to kind of save my lunch money and eat hot Cheetos instead, so... Pike Agrarian is the owner of Amici Pizza Kitchen in Glendale and claims to be the inventor of the Flamin' Hot Cheeto pizza. The secret's really in all three combined with the sauce and the cheese and the dough and then we kind of just crush up the hot cheetos and then we bake it in the oven and then afterwards we put the regular like original hot cheetos on there hike says people see the photos of the hot cheeto pizza on social media and come from all over to try it so of course i couldn't leave without trying some myself all right i'm gonna take a bite cool it's really good I like it. But the most surprising thing to me about the story of Flamin' Hot Cheetos, besides the fact that people are putting them on pizzas, is Richard Montaigne's story. It hasn't been co-opted by big companies claiming the invention as their own, and it hasn't been mythified or whitewashed. Gustavo says this is pretty rare. When it comes to Mexican food, there is so many uh, origin stories, myths, really, and almost all of them are fake. Almost all of them are just a bunch of lies. And so the Flaming Hot Cheetos uh, origin story is one of the very few that has actually been verified. Not only is it verified, Richard Montañez has written an autobiography. 
there's a feature film about him in the works. Ariano says Hollywood doesn't have nearly enough stories featuring Latinos in a positive light, but Richard's life is kind of the perfect inspirational tale, featuring an incredibly unique snack. What flavor is flaming hot? It is not a flavor. It transcends flavors. It transcends food. That's why it just it, 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 it hits people and it stays with people so much. You can catch me in my For the California Report, I'm Bianca Taylor. Flamin' Hot Cheetos are just the latest California creation we're digging into for our Golden State Plate series. All about iconic snacks, drinks, and dishes that got their start here in California. Check out some of the other stories we've cooked up. The martini, the pisco sour, the french dip, and salad dressings like green goddess and ranch. You can check those out at californiareport.org. Over the next few weeks, we'll tell you the surprising origin stories behind the fortune cookie, the Mai Tai, and Santa Maria barbecue. Little boy was quite lost. He had no idea who he was or where he had come from. That's poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti reciting the opening lines of his new autobiographical novel, Little Boy. He helped change the face of literary culture when he founded City Lights Bookstore and Publishing House in San Francisco back in the 1950s. He's turning 100 on March 24th. But as KQED's Chloe Veltman tells us, in many ways, Ferlinghetti's always been a mischievous little boy. Until recently, Lawrence Ferlinghetti was vacationing in Mexico, popping into city lights and working on poetry. But the last couple of years have taken their toll on his almost 100-year-old body. Ferlinghetti is nearly blind. He spends a lot of time in bed and no longer does in-person interviews. There's an echo in my phone. I'm not getting your voice very clearly. But as soon as his assistant adjusts the volume on our call, Ferlinghetti's like a Formula One driver, leaves me in the dust. I have an engine that doesn't run on uh, petroleum. (laughs) He says it runs on pure energy. Actually, Ferlinghetti is a lifelong critic of American car culture, calls it autogeddon. Autogeddon is sweeping the country and there's no stopping it. There's nothing that can be done? Um, uh, Well, yes, there's things that can be done, but they would be revolutionary and the United States isn't ready for revolution. Ferlinghetti's rejection of capitalism, his doomsday worldview, drive his approach to life and literature. This is the best advice he has to offer the young. Duck and run for cover. I had an unhappy childhood. I saw Lindbergh land. I looked homeward and saw no angel. You can hear the one-two punch of adult world weariness and childlike fun in this vintage recording of Ferlinghetti reciting an excerpt from his best-selling 1958 poetry collection, A Coney Island of the Mind. I got caught stealing pencils from the five and ten cent store the same month I made Eagle Scout. No question, this little boy had to grow up fast and become a man. 
Ferlinghetti was born in 1919 in Yonkers, New York. In his new book, Little Boy, the author talks about his early years in a distanced, third-person voice. He was with Aunt Emily, whom he loved very much. About how his aunt had volunteered to raise him because his mother, who already had four sons, couldn't handle a fifth. Born a few months after his father died of a heart attack. Growing up, Ferlinghetti experienced extreme contrasts of wealth and poverty. But poetry has nearly always been in his life. One of his aunt's wealthy employers would have him recite poems on demand. Here he is trying to remember one of them for me. Oh, the Syrians came down like a wolf on the foe. Their, their helmets were gleaming with and gold. <laughs> I forget the rest of it. Ferlinghetti came to California in 1950. He was drawn to it as a place where people could start over. It was what he called this country's last frontier. He launched City Lights in San Francisco in 1953 with a mission to break poetry out of its stuffy academic cage and make it accessible to all. It was a massive risk. We were young and foolish. (laughs) Unlike other bookstores around the country, City Lights was open seven days a week and late into the night. He wanted to create a sense of community, a place for people to toss around ideas. And the business was originally focused on selling paperback books at a time when the literary establishment only cared about hardbacks. Paperbacks weren't considered as real books. The only paperback books were murder mysteries and uh, some science fiction books. But Ferlinghetti was all about democratising literature. City Lights weathered its fair share of ups and downs over the years, like Ferlinghetti's arrest in 1957 on obscenity charges for publishing Allen Ginsberg's groundbreaking epic poem, Howl. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked. City Lights current publisher and director, Elaine Katzenberger, says the business continues to draw customers from all over the world, despite challenges in the industry. We don't have bestsellers and we're not publishing bestsellers. And so staying true to those ideals and maintaining them, that's the hardest thing. And on the other hand, it's the most important thing. Katzenberger shows me into Ferlinghetti's old corner office upstairs at City Lights. She flips through his Rolodex. Studs Terkel, Jack Hirschman, of course. A veritable who's who of 20th century literary life. <laughs> Vincent Farini, Saul Zantz, Mrs. John Dos Passos. Ferlinghetti's status as a literary institution is palpable. It's no wonder there's a street named after him. And the mayor of San Francisco is proclaiming his birthday, March 24th, Lawrence Ferlinghetti Day. I asked if he's proud of his many accomplishments. I don't know, that word proud is just too egotistic. So how about happy? Yeah, happy would be better, except when you get down to try and define the word happy, then you're really in trouble. Instead of all the fuss around his big upcoming birthday, this near centenarian laughs and says he'd rather discuss what it would take to start a revolution. For the California Report, I'm Chloe Veltman in San Francisco. To find out about some of the celebrations for Lawrence Ferlinghetti's 100th birthday, visit californiareport.org.
If you grew up like I did in 1980s Los Angeles, you will recognize this song and the way it reshaped Southern California pop culture. Frank Zappa's surprise hit from 1982 introduced the world to the image of the Valley Girl, a skinny, slang-talking suburban white girl, like totally obsessed about stuff like boys, shoes, and toenail polish. I am still a little bit traumatized about the Valley Girls who bullied me because I didn't have like the right acid-washed jeans with the zippers on the bottom or the gleaming white Reebok high tops. I'm like all these like really great shoe stores. I like love going into like clothing stores and stuff. I like buy the neatest mini. But a new exhibit in Glendale is like totally giving that stereotype a makeover. It's called Valley Girl Redefined, and it brings together a diverse group of more than two dozen women artists challenging what it really means to be female and from the San Fernando Valley. We sent reporter Stephen Cuevas to meet some of them. Artist, musician, and poet Rain Lucien Mathecki is about as far from the typical Valley Girl stereotype as you can get. That's because when her family moved here when she was a kid about 25 years ago, she was actually identified by others as a boy. I have tried to come out as a trans woman since I was could talk, you know, even before I understood what that was. Matheki's writing and multimedia artwork takes on gender identity, mortality, and her own struggles with illness and depression. She's among the artists spotlighted in the Valley Girl Redefined exhibit. Wearing an olive green sweater, matching green hair, and speaking with a slight Val twang, Matheki, though assigned a male gender at birth, does identify as a valley girl. I mean, I have to, right? Like, listen to the way I talk, sure, but I'm far more than my ability to consume. Mindless consumerism, preferably at a mall in, say, Glendale or Encino, is part of the stereotype set loose on the world via Frank Zappa's left-field hit, and as a stock character in tons of TV shows and movies, like Clueless and the 1983 hit Valley Girl. Oh, like, not too cool, right, Peggy? Your mom is so bitchin', Susie. Put that back, Lauren. Artist and photographer Monica Sandoval has mixed feelings on Valley Girl identity. On the one hand, she loved to do a lot of the stuff that the cliché Val loved to do. But Sandoval also shatters the archetype. She's Latina, for one, and perhaps most subversively of all, at least when it comes to the Valley Girl ideal, Sandoval is, in her own words, fat. Growing up, like, if I ever thought about the Valley Girl, it was always something like a caricature. It was just something funny. But it totally influenced the way I would see myself in the mirror. You know, not liking the size of my body or my face because I didn't fit into that stereotype of the Valley Girl. Okay, so this is actually um, two different images. Sandoval's vivid, Um, large-format photograph, together again, dominates the museum's main gallery space. The carefully staged image riffs on the Humpty Dumpty nursery rhyme. Sandoval lies face down in the foreground, sprawled out in front of an ivy-covered brick wall, wearing a revealing one-piece bathing suit atop a squashed bed of colorful flowers. Her face is turned away from the camera, but she doesn't hide her body. Not anymore, she says. Her bare back, legs, and arms are exposed to the viewer. Once I started to own it, that opened up you know, doors for other people to come up to me and have this conversation about their own fears of their own bodies. Show the world that it's okay to be whatever you want to be. Another artist, conceptual video maker Michelle Nunes, admits a little valley girl exists in her too. 
But her work goes beyond the valley to take on cornerstones of American identity and culture, junk food, patriotism, and guns. Just take these kind of gluttonous and unsafe acts that we just have embedded in our society, and I'm going to put them all together in one video. In a piece called Little Liberty, the camera zooms in tight on Noon's face as she force-feeds herself marshmallows. As she tries to choke those down, she also tries to choke out directions for how to install a bump stock on a firearm, similar to the kind used by the Las Vegas mass shooter. The action is punctuated by explosions of fireworks, her voice slightly sped up to sound like a child. Because, says Nunes, it's children who can be disproportionately affected by gun violence. Position interface block in place of the pistol grip while closing the safety detent. You can still participate in this culture that is allowing this to happen. And I was like, this is madness. This never-ending cycle of a depletion of life, and then we're just going to consume more. Another recent mass shooting just four months ago at the Borderline Bar and Grill in Ventura County also plays into a large installation by Rain Maseki, who you met earlier. She fabricated a faux mausoleum wall, complete with dried flowers and grave markers. Talking inside the gallery, with the sound of chimes drifting in from an adjacent installation, she says the work was partly inspired by the death of a student from Moore Park College, near Thousand Oaks, where Matheki works. Her name was Noelle Sparks. But instead of names on the copper grave markers, Matheki instead engraved each with a different haiku that reflects her own Valley Girl identity. This is probably my favorite. How can I be real when I'm half dead and half dissociated? Like, that's how I start my day. <laughs> and I should explain here that Maseki also lives with a rare life-threatening immune deficiency disease that requires monthly blood transfusions and can leave her exhausted and deeply despondent. But she says as a trans woman, this exhibit has rejuvenated her. So to be like approached to like participate in this show, I, I felt like visible, not even just as a woman, but as like a human and uh that was like really profound. Valley Girl Redefined is on view at the Brand Library and Art Center in Glendale through the end of the month. For the California Report, I'm Stephen Cuevas. Back in 1970, a 10-year-old named Joel Lipton was in a fifth grade class in Beverly Hills, and he got an assignment. Write a letter to somebody you admire and ask them, what makes a good citizen? Joel decided to write to Charles Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts comic strip. Nearly 50 years later, Joel Lipton and his wife were recently cleaning out a closet and discovered the letter young Joel got back. I do remember getting the letter in the mail, and I was absolutely thrilled to see that he responded to a letter that I had written. What Charles Schultz wrote back in 1970 has resonance today. 
Joining me now is Gabe Moline. He's senior arts editor with KQED, and he's going to shed some light on this bit of timeless correspondence. Hey there, Gabe. Hi, Sasha. So tell me about Joel Lipton. How did you find out about this story? Um, I saw this letter going around in Santa Rosa social media circles. Um, you know, I've lived in Santa Rosa my whole life. Charles Schultz has a big influence on the culture in Santa Rosa. But this was special. So I called him up and I asked him to read it. Dear Joel, I think it is more difficult these days to define what makes a good citizen than it has ever been before. Certainly, all any of us can do is follow our own conscience and retain faith in our democracy. Sometimes, it is the very people who cry out the loudest in favor of getting back to what they call American virtues who lack this faith in our country. I believe that our greatest strength lies always in the protection of our smallest minorities. Sincerely yours, Charles Schultz. You know, it really sounds like that could have been written today. What did Joel tell you about finding that letter and reading it all these years later? Uh, You know, he thought, here's a kid's cartoonist who, uh, even in 1970, before Watergate, is saying that democracy is a complicated thing. And in 2019, it's about a thousand times more complicated. So he's a professional photographer. He took a photo of it and posted it on Facebook, and it spread like crazy. Um, And I asked him about this. It's a little bit prophetic from his standpoint. And, um, you know, I'm just happy to be able to share it. And it, it means a lot to me because I was a fan of his work, of course, way before writing him a letter. I was 10 at the time, so I, of course, read the Peanuts comics. And then of course, continued to read Peanuts after that and felt like I had a slightly closer connection to him uh, after that. So, Gabe, was this typical? I mean, did Charles Schultz get a lot of letters and did he respond to his fans like this all the time? Not like this. He got a lot of letters. But like a lot of people who were raised in Santa Rosa, I met Charles Schultz in person a few times. Anyone will tell you he was very standoffish, uh, almost to the point that people thought that he was rude. Um, But... After his death, I've since learned that there was a different side of him, and it was very inside of him. Um, He really cared a lot about others, and especially cared a lot about marginalized people. In fact, I called up his widow, Jean Schultz, and I asked her about this. She's one of many people who referred to him by his nickname, Sparky. We get a lot of people who will tell us that they wrote to Sparky and Sparky answered, but this one, the answer... It could have been written today. The letter came and the answer came to him at a time when something was going on that made him answer it in this thorough a way. So, Gabe, where is the letter now? Did Joel put it back in the closet? (laughs) No, he's got it in a proper frame now. And, you know, he made a copy of it and donated it to the Schultz Museum in Santa Rosa. It is signed. It's a signed document. I guess if you have a signed document in your position, you can't go wrong. Gabe Moline is senior editor of KQED Arts. You can see Charles Schultz's letter to 10-year-old Joel Lipton at californiareport.org.
And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. You can listen to us wherever you are. Subscribe to our podcast. Just look for the bear wearing earbuds. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, and we had additional engineering this week from Katie McMurrin. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our online producer is David Marks, and our intern is Asala Sanapur. We had production help this week from Laura Sutsui at KVPR in Fresno. The California Report's editorial team also includes Peter Arcuni, Ashley Ann Kriegbaum, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Like totally, thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation. Accepting nominations now for the 2020 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvine.org. College Futures Foundation, more graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit Donate dot kqed dot org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks